My friends, thanks for listening. This episode contains some sensitive material about suicide. Use some discretion as you consider listening. And if you're feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. For more information, visit faith.yale.edu. And I have just spoken at three funerals of three people I loved who died really difficult deaths. And it's my job to study joy and to teach a class called Life with Belief. Despair is the sense that there is no goodness to be found, that somehow evil trials like have won out. Despair is the sense that there isn't truth to be found. And despair is the feeling I think that people can feel when they feel like no one can reach them, no one can get to them. And for me, joy is a counteragent to despair because joy is the feeling that we get after recognizing truth, meaning, beauty, goodness, our relationship to other people. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. This is a story of coming to face the reality of joy as an act of resistance against despair. There's nothing quaint or Pollyannish about joy, really. But the fact remains that it's easier to think about, write about, talk about than it is to find. Maybe that makes joy a dangerous thing out of our control. Even still, for those who grieve deeply, who have loved sincerely with so much risk that the loss threatens to break them. Our guest today, and with her a chorus of witnesses, she points out that joy has a mysterious capacity to be felt alongside sorrow, and even, sometimes most especially, in the midst of suffering. Angela williams Gorell is Assistant Professor of Practical Theology at Baylor University's George W. Truett Theological Seminary, and author of a new book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Her book recounts, in the form of a theological memoir, her experience of joining the Yale Center for Faith and Culture in 2016 as an associate research scholar for our Theology of Joy and the Good Life Project, and to teach our Yale College course, Life Worth Living. That winter, the reality, the extent, and the dangerous potential of joy would become devastatingly clear. The highly abstract question of what it means to live a life worth living would become painfully acute. Ryan McAnally Linz and the staff of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture walked through much of that time with Angela. So Ryan invited her on the show to share about that experience of encountering the true force, the gravity of joy. Thanks for listening. Hi, Angela. It is so exciting and really an honor to be able to talk to you this week. Your book, The Gravity of Joy, has just come out. And as I was looking through it in the real thing, I found myself going back to December 2016, January 2017, and remembering that time that starts the story of this book. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to speak about it a little bit and say what set this thing going. First of all, thank you so much for having me. 
for, um, thanks to you and to the rest of the team at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, of which I was formerly a part. Obviously, I have so much respect and love for all of you. And so it's awesome to be talking with you today. I was hired to work on the Theology of Joy and the Good Life Project at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture in March of 2016. And I accepted the job with great enthusiasm. I was literally, I basically thought I was finishing up my PhD. And it's just one of those moments in your life where something so incredible happens that you just think, how is this possible that this is my reality? I was ecstatic to come to Yale and to work with all of you and to work on this project. And I thought my job is going to be to investigate joy alongside of some of the most brilliant scholars on the planet. Does it get better than this? I don't think so. Our other job is to teach a class called Life Worth Living, where we get to help young, brilliant people think about their answers to some of the most important questions of our lives. I relished it. Every single day I was coming to work really grateful. And eight months into working on the project in December 2016, specifically one week before Christmas, I get calls and I get a text that no one wants to get. I am told that my cousin's husband, Dustin, died by suicide. I'm in a church parking lot. And I remember crying instantly, wailing, really, walking around the parking lot, just thinking like, how did this happen? Why? No. And the next week was hands down the most devastating week of my life. I have never to this day done so many hard things back to back. It was our family was shattered. And I remember getting back to the center and, and telling all of you that what had happened and just trying to recounting little bits and pieces and just crying a lot during those morning meetings we would have, like where we were praying together and just really just so incredibly heartbroken. And then... <clears throat> And thinking, how will I keep doing this work? How will my family go on? And then a week and a half later, my nephew dies suddenly at 22. I find myself rushing to my oldest sister's side, being with her through his funeral, speaking at his funeral as well. My nephew's funeral was on a Saturday. I got back on Sunday night to New Haven. And two nights later, get a message that my dad is dying. I can't even process it at the time. All I can think to myself is I have to teach this class tomorrow morning for whatever reason. And so I get up the next day and I teach the first day of life worth living. And the first chapter of the gravity of joy is that it is that day. It is what is it? What was it like to introduce that class, to introduce myself to these young people with all of that going on? And then I find myself the next day after that first day of teaching life worth living on three planes and in a rental car. And I get in I get to the hospital in time. Thanks be to God to see my dad before he died. But I spent about the last five hours with him. And then I get back to New Haven after doing his funeral on the following Tuesday. And I have just spoken at three funerals of three people I loved who died really difficult deaths and it's my job to study joy and to teach a class called Life Worth Living. How did you teach that class? I, I personally can't imagine myself doing something like that. It sounds impossible. Like in the middle of it. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
All, all I can think is that the only reason why I was able to do it was I needed something to do that felt worthy, meaningful, good to be doing. Or I would, because I was so distraught. I had so little sleep and cried so much by the time I got the message from about my dad that I literally, I think it might've been a post-traumatic stress response where it was just like, I actually have to shut down. Like I can't go there right this second. Like I just need to do this thing. And it almost became the thing that I thought was going to be so different. I mean, what I think what Life Worth Living did for me, that class, specifically that semester, it allowed me to give myself over to something that felt so worthy that, and then to work through my grief while like giving myself over to this other thing, but because, and not to give way to despair. Because I think if we don't, if we're in the midst of grief and we don't feel like we have something to give ourselves over to, it's very easy to slip into despair or to have some sort of existential crisis, faith crisis, and just go in on ourselves. And life worth living was this gift that like said, no, keep going. Now the, the book interweaves your story with two big crises in contemporary American life, opioid addiction and suicide. And, and yet it's called the gravity of jewel. I wonder if you could say a bit about how those things go together. Death by opioid addiction, whether it's overdose or in like the case of my dad, his kidney and liver shut down after years of opioid use. Death by opioids and death by suicide have both been called deaths of despair. For me, like when I think about it as a theologian, despair is a sense that meaninglessness, certainly, like a sense that like meaning has been lost. I think as thinking theologically about despair, I think there's also a sense that God doesn't exist or God isn't present. God isn't good. God isn't who God, we thought God was. Those sorts of things which absolutely can give us over to despair. Despair is the sense that there is no goodness to be found, that somehow evil trials like have won out. Despair is the sense that there isn't truth to be found. And despair is the feeling I think that people can feel when they feel like no one can reach them, no one can get to them. Mm. And for me, joy is a counteragent to despair because joy is the feeling that we get after recognizing truth, meaning, beauty, goodness, our relationship to other people. And so joy resists despair, as our colleague Willie James Jennings has said, it's a work of resistance against despair because as we recognize those things that I just named, we're working against the, the sort of voice in our head that might say there isn't something more. And I, I think one of that's what like in the book, I say joy is an illumination. It's the ability to see beyond to something more. And despair wants to tell us there's not something more than meets the eye. There's not something more that we can't touch. And joy suggests otherwise. And, and I found that, in, and I think, so as I tried to think about Dustin's suicide, my dad's addiction, his substance use, the senselessness of my nephew's death, I thought about how despair related to all of that or could for any of us even post their deaths and everything like that. And then I saw joy in my own life and in the lives of others helping me to work against that in my own life, but also realizing, wow, is 
it was, especially in Dustin and dad's life, was there something, were they unable to see these things? Is that what was going on? You, you said something that, that stuck out to me just a minute ago, that despair might include the sense that, that nobody can reach you. I take it that through even through your grief, you didn't stay in despair. And so who reached you? Yes, but it's the most remarkable thing that happened to me while I was working on the Joy Project was going to church and being in a church service and hearing an invitation from someone from the front who said to the whole congregation, hey, we're leading a Bible study at a women's prison and we need help. And the only way that I can describe it is something mystical, something Holy Spirit led happened in me where I just felt, even though I was at the end of myself, even though I was a year and five months into grief, and it really was a year and five months of walking in the fog of grief of every day, going to work with a very heavy heart, crying constantly, very, as I described very (laughs) vividly in the gravity of joy, a lot of anger, a lot of tears, a lot of fear of death. I was constantly afraid of getting another phone call, another text. And so a year and five months into this grief process, someone announces at church, we need people to join this team. And I felt that stirring in me and I surrendered to the invitation and I just said, yes, like I will go. And I realized a few weeks into working. So I, every, so every Wednesday night, I go to this prison for several weeks in a row And every Wednesday night, a different woman tells me that she's thinking about having suicidal thoughts. And then I also realize that the vast majority of the women are in prison for some sort of thing related to substance use. (laughs) And I go to one of the corrections officers, I remember on like the fourth week that I was there. And I tell him like, hey, this is problematic. Like every Wednesday that I'm here, someone tells me about their suicidal thoughts I'm very concerned about this like building that I'm serving. And he did no one tell you you're the chaplain for women on suicide watch. (laughs) What happened as I walked away from that counter was I realized these women are going to help me to understand what Dustin was going through. They're going to help me to understand my dad more. And they're going to help me to understand my own grief, my anger, my fear. Like these women are going to minister to me. They're already opening up, like in telling their stories, like my story is being broken up and being brought into this space as well. And that's when I began to really pay attention to what was happening. And also, I will say that I never felt like life worth living was shallow, but I did have a moment in like after in the months following my dad's death where I did start to wonder, is our study of joy too shallow. In the midst of the world we're in, should we be doing something else? And so in that prison, as I walked away from the counter, I remember thinking and going back to that room with those women, thinking, oh my goodness, if our research on joy cannot speak to this group of women, if it cannot speak to my suffering, if it cannot speak to Dustin and dad's suffering, then it is too shallow. But is there something, but I also felt in that room that my faith and doubt, these women's experiences, my family's weeks of hell and our research on joy, 
that it collided and like those things collided in that space. And I could feel God beginning to help me to see something that I did not, had not formally seen in our work. Yeah. I don't think I was ever really able to fully admit myself at an existential level to the joy aspect of that project that we were working on together, in part because I always had the suspicion that you're talking about. And one thing that's, that really strikes me in your book is that you go through the suspicion, through the sense that there might be shallowness, but you come to something that's weighty, that has a depth to it. Do you think that's the sort of insight that you could have gotten without having gone through the experiences you went through without having, yeah, is the grief essential to that? I don't, I think I want to side with Miroslav and say that joy is not dependent on sorrow, but it can accompany it. So then I want to say, if I say that, I want to say, I want to say, I don't know that is my, my understanding of joy, is that the kind of understanding of joy that I have dependent on the kind of suffering my family endured? I hope not. But also, I will say this though, maybe this is how I think about it now. There are different kinds of joy. And that was for me, one of the most incredible things that I learned through writing this book and through reading all the different papers of people was that joy really is modifiable as a positive emotion in like in a way that no other emotion seems to be. It's just very modifiable. But, and so it's, I think I would have known about certain kinds of joy without the kind of suffering, but maybe like joy as a bright sorrow, sobering joy, redemptive joy. It seems to me that you have to have redemptive joy, restorative joy. You have to have lost something. To feel healing joy, you have to have needed healing. To feel, to to know sobering joy, like joy is a bright sorrow, you have to have some sort of relatedness to the brokenness of the world. When's the first time you remember feeling joy of any of those kinds after that, like you said, long time of the fog of grief and the just... Yeah, the toughness of it all. I mean, there's a couple of stories I tell of experiencing joy during, there's a moment of bright sorrow during the week that we're preparing for Dustin's funeral, but I didn't realize it at the time. I wouldn't have described it like joy as a bright sorrow then. So I could recount, I could tell that story, which was like the first instant of joy. And it was two days after his suicide, but I did not realize it until literally almost two years later. But so the moment that I realized this is joy, this is what it feels like. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. That moment was, it was, I went on a trip with the one year anniversary of everything. And I, I didn't want to do Christmas and New Year's as usual. So I just did, got rid of every ritual that I'd ever done my whole life and just did nothing basically <laughs> until I went on this trip and then just really wanted to be on, you know, wanted to be somewhere else. And the ocean has always been this place of a sanctuary for me, like living in Los Angeles for 13 years. Whenever I wanted to find out where God was, I would go to the ocean and I would park and I would walk all the way out on the sand and like to as close to the water as possible and sit down and I'd be like, okay, God, we have to talk because somehow I just thought that's where God was. <laughs> But so I wanted to go to the ocean and I went to this country I'd never been to because quite frankly, it had the cheapest flights from New Haven to it. It was a wild deal and I used credit card points to do it. And, and I, it was New Year's Eve 
And I got there on a Saturday night, New Year's Eve, celebrate New Year's Eve. And it was this, and that was all happiness. It was like, eat good food, drink good drinks, listen to amazing music. That was fun. And happy. I have no problem with happiness. It's just, I think that joy is a far more profound emotion and the thing that should, you know, be the, the way that our Christian life sounds over happiness. But I was very happy. But then we walk out onto the beach and fireworks are going off and staring at the fireworks and it's cool. It's fun. It's interesting. And you're feeling again, like more happiness. Like this is a great way to ring in the new year. This was a good decision. <laughs> and I begin walking back to the place I was staying and it starts pouring rain, just pouring rain out of nowhere. No, like totally unexpected, drenched in rain. And I am so wet. I do, at first I'm like trying to hold my dress, trying to like, and then I'm like, I'm a mile from the place I'm staying. This is just not, I'm just going to be soaked. Like every ounce of me is, and I'm running in the rain and then stop and walk. And I start just laughing hysterically. And the person I'm running with says, change is coming. Because in movies and being in LA, love films, whenever it rains in a film, it says that there's change coming. And so they're like, change is coming. And I'm like, yes. And there was something I don't, I cannot, it is otherworldly. It is the something more, something shifted in my heart. And I describe it in the gravity of joy as a futuristic joy. I suddenly found myself rejoicing over what ought to be, what was to come. I suddenly believed that joy might make its way to me again. And just the mere, like, what if of joy, like found me on that beach (laughs) running in the pouring rain. And I thought, yes, I I think change is coming. Yeah. I wonder if we could circle back to your experience with the Bible study, get the sense in talking with you that emotional life is deeply individual is it's it's very personal right it's profoundly interior that you think of it also as as really intricately interwoven in community spaces and i'm i'm wondering what kind of community did you find in that bible study what was especially life-giving about it what did you what did you find there well as you asked me that question i thought i just i thought of those women and i thought about particular moments that just flooded my mind and then I realized like, but the answer to your question, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what a, what a gift. In that Bible study, there was no shame. It was a room of people who had been through it, like who had been through hell and back. Like every woman who entered that space had really been through very hard things. They had seen things they should never had seen, had, had to see. They were said to things to them that they should have never heard. They were treated so poorly, loved so little. And so they came into the room oftentimes with a lot of shame for their backgrounds, for what they had done to make money, to survive. But in that circle, if you sang off pitch, if you went on too long with your story, if you forgot what you were saying in the middle of what you were saying, if you didn't, couldn't find a word, and you were looking for it and somebody had to fill it in. It wasn't like you were embarrassed. You weren't. There was a moment where I described in the book, I think Vanessa was helping a young woman who was being bullied in the prison write a letter 
on her behalf, like to somebody who with power at the prison to get her taken out off her tier. And she said in front of everybody, I can't write. And there was no shame. No one laughed when Amy shared her story about what she wanted to do with her life. No, no one laughed. That's the thing. There was no shame in that room. And when you don't feel shame, when you feel like that, who you are in all your messiness, all your beauty, every kind of like way that you can be, want to be, need to be is welcome. Really incredible things can happen. In what ways are you trying to honor like what you were given there? And you have a very different relation to it than most of the women who are in the Bible study who didn't get to choose when they left and you did. So yeah, how do you think about that? What I think like the gravity of joy is dedicated partly to that. It's dedicated to Dustin, Mason and dad. And then it's also dedicated to the women in that Bible study. And I say very specifically and intentionally, may the joy that you brought me be yours too. Recognizing that what I experienced in that room is not necessarily what they experienced. That they have, yes, I walked out every Wednesday night. <laughs> I, I think that the gravity of joy, what they did for me, was they helped me to articulate what kind of life is worthy of our humanity. Like we talk about in Christ and being human in the classes we teach about Jesus and the meaning of life, the good life, the true life. So for me, they helped me to articulate in new, fresh ways what it means to live a life worthy of my humanity because they did help me to feel more human again and to get in touch with my own, to be honest and truthful about what I was going through and to work through it. And they had this way of humanizing one another in a very dehumanizing institution that taught me so much. And so the gravity of joy is my effort to humanize people who are incarcerated. And all I'm like praying that more people join the groundswell of people who are working for prison reform or prison abolition in this country and it's my great hope and my great prayer that less women and men will go through what they have gone through because, and because people will realize that addiction is a, is a health crisis. It's not a moral failure. That suicidal thinking is a health crisis. It's not a moral failure. That when you commit a crime of any kind, you have dehumanized someone else likely in all likelihood, but also you dehumanize yourself. So to put people into a cycle of dehumanization does not do anything for them. And so I felt like the way that I could thank these women for restoring my faith, for helping me to find myself and to be honest and to, to get on the road to healing would be like to humanize the experience of people who are incarcerated, to talk about the cycles that need to be broken one of the things that I, that I appreciate about the way that you write is that it is profoundly your story. You're telling your story, but the other people who figure in it don't appear simply to be kind of side characters in your story, but other subjects who whose stories happen to intersect with the one that you're telling. And I think that connects to another thing that, that I wanted to talk about. I was struck very strongly by the way, one way that you don't 
tell your story, which is as as a kind of divine plan story. God was doing X so that I would experience or learn why. And I'm, I'm thankful for all of that. How, how do you think about God's activity in, in the story that you tell in the book? You know, on Monday, I was teaching Jesus and the Meaning of Life here at Baylor. And we were talking about in Romans 8, where it says all things work together for good. And I actually, I had this sort of realization, this illumination myself, which is the gift of teaching that we get to keep learning all the time. And I've always hated that passage, to be honest. It's been one of those passages that like I have to, that just bothers me. (laughs) So I'm always wrestling with it. But on Monday, as I was talking with my students, I felt like, oh, wait, all things work together for good in the sense of not this thing works for good, but like this thing in your life and this thing in your life and this thing and this thing come together. And God makes like, it's all being aimed toward the good of the world, the good of humanity, the good of creation, like toward redemption. Like it's all aimed and caught up in that. And for me, I also want to say something powerful that happened on Monday in class. One of my students shared a very difficult story and I'll just protect that story by just saying very broadly that she basically said something terrible had happened eight years prior. And this was the eight year anniversary of something awful, but it was, and she said, I grew up in the Northeast in Providence and, and I grew up in this place where no one ever went to church. No one told me about Jesus. No one invited me into faith. And so here she was like a teenager when this terrible thing happened to her. And then she said it was this terrible thing that allowed her to like want to seek out faith, like to become a Christian because she was looking for something to live for and something to be like passionate. I don't know. So she found faith through this horrible thing. And then she looks at all of us and she says, did God need this terrible thing to happen to me for God, for me to know God? Mm, yep. And I, I decided in, as, in that moment as a professor, I looked at everyone in the circle and I said, what say you? Answer her question. What do you think? And then one of my brilliant, loving students who's been in ministry for a long time, because I have grad students and undergrads together, he looks at her. It's like a good, long, hard minute, which was great, of silence, because that needed that. Everyone honored that, (laughs) like the way that they felt the weight of the question. And he looks at her and he said, God was always seeking after you. God was always speaking to you. God always loved you. God always wanted you to know that, to realize it. It just seems that it was that particular circumstance that allowed you to see what God had already been up to for a long time. And I feel like that really relates to what I feel that I resonated so deeply with it. So in the book, you, you talk about this question that you would ask at the Bible study. And I wanted to ask it of you now as the book is out. And that question is what right now in March of 2021 is your deepest longing? It is a deep hope of mine that people read this book with each other, with other people. That's why I created the discussion story and activity guide for it to go along with it is because it's a book. This guide is about with questions and story prompts because the hope of the book is that in telling my story that other people feel the freedom to tell theirs. 
And so my deepest hope is that people feel seen, they feel heard, they feel resonated with, they think, oh my goodness, I'm not alone in, in like my experience of fear. Last week I was being interviewed by someone who lost his mother to substance use. And he said, I was so angry for so long and I didn't really put that together. But when I read your book, I thought, oh, that was it. I was so angry too. Oh my goodness. And so I just hope people feel understood and that it breaks open. I just, I hope more Christian communities talk honestly and openly about suicidal thinking, about substance use, about mass incarceration, like these three very important issues of our time that are not just issues, but people's lives. I hope it breaks open. And in these space, I don't want people to experience the silence of the church the way that I did after these weeks of hell. And yeah, that, that's a long way of saying, yeah, I just hope people feel seen. Thank you, Angela. It's, it is a joy, one of those deep joys to speak with you. Thank you for your questions. Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured theologians Angela Gurell and Ryan McAnally Lins. I'm Evan Rosa and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. We produce a new episode every Saturday and you can subscribe through any podcast app. We're grateful that you're listening to this podcast. We're passionate about making this work consistently accessible to people who are genuinely concerned about the viability of faith in a world racked with division, contested views about what it means to be human and what it means to live life well. If you're in a position to support our show financially, please consider partnering with us. We rely on the generosity of individuals like you to make our work possible. And if you're not, Please continue listening and engaging the content. Let us know what you're interested in. We're grateful that you're listening. But if you can give, if you're truly passionate about supporting podcasting, that's all about pursuing really living lives that are worthy of our humanity, then consider a gift to the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit faith.yale.edu slash give. It's our joy to bring these shows to you. And we'd invite you to bring that same joy in supporting this work. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more next week. Thank you.